Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR-130-CB-143, Rebuke and Excommunication, Church Law, 1 Timothy 1 Tim 4. Our scripture is 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter. And our subject, Rebuke and Excommunication. 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglecting not the gift, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Our subject is, as was indicated, rebuke and excommunication, the biblical doctrines concerning these things. The whole epistle of Paul to Timothy deals with his subject, so that almost any passage or chapter of Timothy could be equally well read. The fourth chapter, perhaps, is as good a place as any to begin because it includes a counsel to Timothy that he must begin with his own self-discipline in order to have discipline within the church so that the beginning of true order is an order in his own life, that he must 
Give attendance to reading, to a study of the scripture, to exhortation, to doctrine. To cultivate the gift which God has given him. To take heed unto himself. In order, as the rest of the epistle makes clear, that he may take heed unto the church of God. Now it is important, therefore, to see what St. Paul in this letter is talking about when he deals with matters of punishment, rebuke, and excommunication in the church. Very clearly, Timothy is told that he must speak to those who go astray. But he is also told that it is to be done with respect, with patience, and with regard for the age of the people he is dealing with. In the fifth chapter, for example, Timothy is told to rebuke not an elder, that is, not to treat him as though he were a child, but entreat him as a father, the younger men as brethren. The elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. And so on as Paul gives counsel to Timothy concerning the means of bringing chastisement to bear on those who have gone astray. It is to be a quiet word to those who are offenders by Timothy as pastor, with due respect for the age and the position of those involved. In some cases, when the sin is serious, as the 20th verse indicates, there is to be a public rebuke before all. Now the important point for us to understand is not the forms of rebuke and excommunication. But what is St. Paul talking about when he deals with the things that the church must punish? It is at this point that too often the church goes astray. Too commonly... It deals with institutional problems, matters of the church. And yet what St. Paul touches on here is something entirely different. Thus, in the first chapter, he makes very clear that the point of reference is not the institution of the church, but God's kingdom. Not an organization and its sway, but the reign of God and the rule of God in the hearts of men. Throughout the book, St. Paul cites certain areas where the church must punish. What are these areas? One of them, very clearly, is the area of authority. In the second chapter, verses 5 to 8, or 8 to 15, this is very, very clear. Women have their place, men have their place, 
authority in the home is to be respected. In the third chapter, the first 13 verses, the authority of a presbyter depends, we are told, on his qualifications. Authority is given only to men who are capable of exercising authority, of disciplining themselves and their household. Thus, failure to abide by authority and to exercise due authority is a cause for rebuke. This means, therefore, men as officers in the church and as heads of household must exercise authority. In due places, they must submit to authority, and the same is true of women. They have authority that they must exercise and authority that they must submit to. So that Paul very, very clearly emphasizes this aspect of authority. It is significant as he deals with the church that those who exercise authority alone must be given authority. A man who cannot rule his household has no right to rule the church of God. Now a second area that St. Paul deals with when he deals with matters that the church must concern itself with is doctrine. In our scripture lesson, we dealt with it. He cites some things that constitute false teaching that must be rebuked, must be cast out of the church. Forbidding to marry, sacerdotal celibacy, the idea that there is a special holiness in remaining single. This is clearly false teaching. It was a kind of idea that was popular in Greek and Roman circles. After all, remember the Vestal Virgins of Rome. It is out of these pagan ideas that such ideas crept into Christendom. Paul, inspired of God, in advance of these things, warned against them commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. The idea that the eating of any meat is wrong, as some began to teach before the end of the first century, and some still do teach. The Adventists, for example. Or the idea that on certain days meats should be abstained from. Paul clearly puts the mark of false doctrine on these things. Then also he condemns profane and old wives' fables all kinds of false teaching, which he deal, uh, describes rather disrespectfully because he does not feel they command respect. False doctrine, 
heretical teachings. The belief that bodily exercise was the key to religious development. In other words, in those days, Rome was full of ideas like yoga. In fact, the very same thing under a different name. It had come from India. And there were many who felt that by going through all kinds of contortions and physical exercises, they could gain a higher spiritual state. Thus, in this second class of things that are subject to rebuke and finally excommunication, we have doctrine, false teachings, such as asceticism and sacerdotal celibacy, yoga, and so on. So we see, first of all, authority. Failure to exercise it or contempt for it is grounds for punishment and second doctrine, which is false. Third area is the area of morality. Very clearly in the third verse of the fifth chapter, St. Paul declares, honor widows that are widows indeed. Now it is interesting to look at this verse in a modern translation because sometimes we cheapen words with the passing of years. Today, honor is a very trifling word. It's lost a great deal of its meaning. So that when a statement is made about honoring someone, we very often fail to realize what it means. We think it's just a kind of general surface respect good manners toward someone. But Moffat, for example, translates this same verse very literally. Widows in real need must be supported from the fund. That's a very practical way of honoring people, is it not? Honor thy father and thy mother. What does it mean? It means if they are in need of help, they are to be supported in any and every way. This is what St. Paul meant when he said that faithful pastors were worthy of double honor, double support. That is clearly an, in, uh, an aspect of the meaning of honor, a very central one. In 1 Timothy 5, the fourth verse, If any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now again, as we look at Moffat, we get an insight into a very modern reading of this, which brings out the original meaning in contemporary language. 
When a widow has children or grandchildren, they, the children or grandchildren, must learn that the first duty of religion is to their own household, and that they should make some return to those who have brought them up. In God's sight, this is commendable indeed. So, children are to be taught their responsibility to their parents and to their grandparents. This is commendable in God's sight. Verse 8 in the King James, If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Well, this comes out in the English. Moffat renders it, whoever does not provide for his own relatives and particularly for his own family has repudiated the faith. He is worse than an infidel. In other words, is to be excommunicated. Now, very clearly, what St. Paul is telling Timothy when he tells him the things that are to be punished in the church is more than rules and regulations of the church, but rather fundamental matters of morality, matters of authority, matters of doctrine, matters of the family life and care for one's own. Just as honor means more than verbal respect, so requite in the fourth verse and provide means more than merely financial support. It means in the fourth verse when the widow has this obligation that she must provide them with Christian education one which will teach them their responsibilities to God and to their family as well as to all men. Now this seems like a big order to churches today and they are very much disinterested in doing it. But let us remember that the early church, which was a persecuted church, which was a church regularly robbed because it was an illegal body in the Roman Empire and Christians were targets for any kind of expropriation. That early church still provided for widows and orphans who did not have relatives. That church also went through the streets of Rome at night down to the river Tiber where unwanted babies were tossed under the bridges and collected those babies and reared them. That was the early church. It cared for its own. St. Paul has more to say. In the 18th verse, of the fifth chapter 
the 17th and 18th, he says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. So here we have another aspect of matters within the church that require punishment. A church has an obligation not only to provide for those in need within its circle, to provide for its pastor, to see to it that all provide properly for their laborers. Now, this is not a fair wage law. It simply requires honesty and fair dealing with employees. And those who are dishonest here must be dealt with. Again, the tenth verse. It speaks of lodging strangers. Now, this is not an aspect that is relevant to us today in the immediate sense. What it has reference to is this. As I have cited before, hotels in those days were also houses of prostitution. There was no feeling that there was anything wrong with prostitution, and so when you were provided with a room and a bed and meal, the girl went with it. It was a package deal. The only question was if you had other tastes, then you could demand a boy instead. Now, this was the degeneracy of life in those days. And as a result, a Christian traveler could not go to an inn outside of Palestine. In Palestine, the inns were of a different character. But if he went to Rome, if he had no friend to stay with, he was really in a difficult position. And this is why when St. Paul went somewhere he attended immediately the synagogue or called on a Jewish family to establish a relationship so that he could have a place. And the first convert he made, he stayed with them. And so there was the responsibility of lodging strangers, of providing for those who, because of moral standards, could not go to the Roman hotels. We do not have that problem today. But the point of this is still valid. Whenever there are situations and conditions where Christians have special and emergency needs, they should be covered by this requirement of lodging strangers, of providing hospitality, of providing emergency relief, of ministering to the relief of the saints. Thus, very clearly, the purpose of the church in Scripture is not to build up the church as an institution but to further the reign of God in the hearts of men and God's law order in society. 
Its purpose is to create a community where believers are members one of another, where they minister to the relief of one another, where they are mindful that they are called under God to love one another, to defend their common faith and their common household of faith, to pray for one another in need, and to chastise those who offend against the body of Christ. This is rebuke and excommunication according to the word of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for the vision of thy reign which is given to us in thy word. We thank thee that thou hast called us first to be thy people, and that through the blood of Jesus Christ thou hast cleansed us from all sin. We thank thee that in Christ thou hast made us members one of another and hast given us so great a calling to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over it in thee. Restore us, O Lord, to this glorious calling and grant that again churches flourish and abound which seek thy face, which magnify thy word, which are indeed families of grace. O Lord our God, prosper us according to thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. I know that at the Passover service it is for John the Baptist, the forerunner. Or, or I mean Elijah as the forerunner. So the in the Passover service they do have a place always set for Elijah. Whether they do at other meals, I, I don't know. Any other questions?
uh, what was that again? Because uh, if you're living you couldn't be capable of it. No. Right. You're not reprobate then. You're not capable of it. God has redeemed you and it's his doing and he will preserve you. If there are no further questions, there is something I'd like to share with you. We had uh, something of a little shakedown or a shake-up this week. And along those lines, it is interesting to consider something far more fearful that took place in the last century. Let me add, by the way, that in my biblical philosophy of history, I dealt with the subject of various natural disasters, earthquakes, hurricanes, and the like, and commented on the fact that in the first 15 or so years after World War II, there were far more, almost twice as many, in the, as in the 50 years before World War II. Every kind of natural disaster has greatly increased. However, this deals with one that happened in the last century, which is perhaps the most uh, fearful ever recorded. The eruption of Krakatoa in 1883. Krakatoa was a volcano in the East Indies, which was on an island, uninhabited, for two centuries, Krakatoa had been supposedly dormant and was believed to be extinct. But on May 20, 1883, it came to life. And for three months, it continued to erupt mildly. But it finally blew up at an incredible rate on August 26, 1883. And it is quite a remarkable account. It was exactly 10.02, August 27, when the island finally erupted in the most violent explosion in human history. Two-thirds of the island of Krakatoa exploded upward with a roar that could be heard over an area four times as large as the United States. Professor Willard H. Parson, chairman of the Department of Geology at Wayne State University, Detroit, has stated that Krakatoa probably released one million times more energy than the largest H-bomb yet set off. The gigantic outburst hurled aloft 13 cubic miles of material two-thirds of which fell on the straits or nearby land areas. The remainder, over four million cubic miles of dust, drifted around the world until it had fallen on every country. Two weeks after the eruption, volcanic clouds appeared over Australia. By September 20, they were seen in South Africa and California. This was man's first intimation of the presence of high-altitude winds known today as jet streams. It was, I'm skipping through, 
because of this explosion that they were able to chart the jet streams for the first time. And the advance of the colossal dust cloud was marked by extraordinary phenomena. The earth never before had been treated to such brilliant sunrises and sunsets. At Yokohama, a sunset was described as blood red. Green suns were seen at Panama. Hawaiian observers reported the sunset as fiery red, and so on. In New York and Connecticut, flaming sunsets set fire extinctions racing out to extinguish non-existing fires. In one case, one ship captain had, uh, who was uh, some miles from the blast, had three feet of dust fall in a very short time on the decks. Another captain found his barometer suddenly rising and falling as much as an inch a time. Uh, another uh, captain reported the explosion had shattered the eardrums of over half his crew. Breathing was extremely difficult at sea. Lightning running in all directions illuminated the heavens, and all expected that the last days of the earth had come. Debris from the volcano covered the sea with a layer of pumice so thick that in places ships were unable to force their way through it. High and huge floating islands of this material covered the sea for hundreds of miles, sometimes to a depth of seven feet. One ship sailed for three consecutive days through 500 miles of floating debris. Then it created, of course, uh, tidal waves, which reared up to mountainous size. Preceded by a torrent of wind, the sea wave or tsunami higher than the tallest palm stormed up the beaches, rushed across the lowlands, and leaped up to laugh at hilltops, leaving death and destruction in its wake. Moving at incredible speed, the massive wall of uh, water shattered ships, villages, and people. Roaring like a thousand express trains, it smashed onto the land, hurling people, animals, buildings, and trees into a watery chaos. A gunboat was lifted up and deposited two miles inland, 30 feet above sea level, her entire crew of 20 men perishing in the deluge. One wave rushed inland with such force that at a distance of three miles from the shore, it still retained a height of 30 feet. At still another place, the sea swept inland as high as a 14-story building, destroying stone houses on a hill 130 feet above sea level. One town in Java, 53 miles from Krakatoa, was obliterated by a wave estimated at a height of 135 feet. A survivor reported ships hurled aloft and carried inland, and stone lighthouses toppled like toys. In one town, all of the houses were swept away in one blow, like a house of uh, cards, and so on. And these waves actually reached as far as the shores of England around the world. Then it goes on to describe that uh, uh, some of the reasons that caused it. 
And then, if Krakatoa provided a scene of total destruction, it likewise set the stage for a drama of miraculous rebirth. Before the shattering eruption, the island was a mass of greenery. From base to summit, it was covered by a dense growth of tropical vegetation. But the searing fury of the blast changed all this into a sterile, lifeless desert. No animal, no plant, no seed, no spore survived the Holocaust. When the ashes settled and the lava cooled, the island was devoid of life as a newly formed planet. This cataclysm presented scientists with a unique laboratory. Here was an unprecedented opportunity to study the colonization of a completely lifeless world. What would the first immigrants be and how would they develop? From Java and Sumatra, some 25 miles away across the Sunda Strait, the colonists began to arrive. The first sign of life was found just nine months after an eruption, the eruption. A botanist, after a careful search of the island, found a solitary spider hopefully spinning a web. Within two years, some forms of plant life had taken root. Fifteen species of flowering plants and eleven kinds of fern were growing. A decade passed, and the island wore a thin mantle of green. A fringe of coconut trees lined the shore. There were four varieties of orchids and scattered patches of wild sugar cane. By 1908, 263 varieties of animal life had arrived. Most of these invaders were insects, but there were also 16 species of birds, four of land snakes and two of reptiles. Fifty years after the upheaval, a luxurious growth of tropical vegetation again covered the island, and in the dense young forest, over a thousand forms of animal life had established themselves. Life on Krakatoa has not fully reestablished itself. The island still does not support its original complement of plants and animals. Nevertheless, history's most shattering explosion and its aftermath provides a priceless illustration of nature's tremendous uh, power of restoring itself. Total destruction followed by swift renewal. I think this is a very interesting article, especially when we have faced something in our own area. And it is interesting to realize, too, that although we think of this as earthquake country, there is abundant evidence that the worst earthquake in history struck in 1811 in Missouri, Illinois, and that country, the most devastating earthquake ever known. Also, earlier than that, in the colonial period, very severe earthquakes were experienced along the entire Atlantic seaboard in England and especially in Lisbon, Portugal. Those areas have not had quakes for a long time. Like Krakatoa, it is assumed that they don't exist. But earthquake country is the whole world. Scripture says, For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Life in this world 
is not given a sure foundation except in God. And that's why the 46th Psalm, which was written at such a time, and is worth rereading, the mountains shake with a swelling thereof. And it speaks of the mountains dissolving into the sea. And what is the refrain of the Lord of hosts is with us? The God of Jacob is our refuge. We are an earthquake country everywhere in the world. We are also in volcano country, incidentally. Mount Lassen in uh, Northern California, although they don't tell you about it, during World War I blew up. And it could any time again. But we do have an unshakable foundation, not in the ground under our feet, but in the Lord of hosts. Our time is just about up, and I'd like to remind you of the Senhold Seminar this Saturday. We have close to a hundred already, but we can take some more. It will begin at 3 p.m. Knott's Berry Farm at the Chicken House, but please be there at 2.45 for registration. Then on March the 11th, the Santa Monica Women's Club, 4th and Wilshire, the Reverend T. Robert Ingram and myself as speakers, and the same meeting repeated in Whittier at the Catherine Edwards Intermediate High School Auditorium on Friday, March the 12th, 8 o'clock for both meetings. Let's bow our heads now for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.